Okay, let's find 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 6. We're eking our way through. It won't be that long before we're finished. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, where we will start. Here we go. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, Peter writes, And that by means of these, the world that had then existed was deluged with water and perished. Uh, talks about Noah's flood. And so for that reason, we're going to start uh, with prayer and then we're going to delve into the idea of Noah's flood. We won't, I won't do a, a whole uh, giant uh, systematic discourse on Noah's flood today. Not time for that, but we will talk about it some and I'm going to talk about some of those th th ways to understand it. But pretty much we're going, to tr we're going to do our best to land where Peter lands and apply it where Peter applies it. All right. So let's pray and then we'll continue. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to, uh, God, be with your people. Father, first and foremost, the best thing in the world, Father God, is being here in the house of God with your people, Father. Um, I know, Lord, um, that it is a, a precious privilege on this planet, God, to be able to freely gather in the name of Christ Jesus to be able to, to talk of the things that we are required to talk about today. We have to preach about coming judgment, Father God. We have to preach about God's wrath against sin. We have to preach, Father God, about hope um, in, in the form of Jesus Christ. And those are all God ideas that are illegal somewhere. And many of them are illegal. Uh, and in some form, they're illegal everywhere, Father. So we realize we are preaching God in many ways on borrowed time. And for that reason, God, this is a church that's listening on borrowed, borrowed time. We have to, Father God, submit ourselves to your precious truths and do it now. If we don't, Father, there's, uh, there's only hope. There's no hope for the future aside from Jesus Christ, Father. And so we preach these things and we stand in the gap, in the breach, Father God, and we dare uh, the, the forces of evil, Father God, to try to overcome us because we know, God, that we are armed with truth that transforms lives, that saves people from hell, God. That's the reason why we gather. It's the only reason, God, why you created the church, God, uh, so that your army would have... Uh, the, the equipping, Father God, the training, and, Father God, the encouragement to go forth, Lord, armed with a, with a transforming truth. So we do that now, Father God. We prepare ourselves, God, and I pray, God, that you will speak through me today, Lord. Uh, break my heart about this, Father, more than it's already been broken. Confront me, Father God, while I preach it, more than I've already been confronted. And bless, God, this people that you've dealt first with their leader, God, and now you're dealing with them, Lord. I thank you, Father. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray, Lord. Amen. So, um, in the original judgment upon the earth. And the idea that God judges the earth should not be something strange to us. God has judged either the entire earth, as in the, the Noahic flood, or parts of it, Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, and the cities of the plain that simply ceased to exist. Christ talks about judgments upon Tyre and Sidon. Uh, these are prophecies that are fulfilled by God when people reject Him and His loving truth. We ought to be used to the idea that God's going to judge. He has every right to judge, and, and for that reason He does. But the most consistent idea through judgment, this idea of a consistent pattern, I'll use that a lot sometimes in my preaching, is the idea that while God judges, and His judgment's always terrible. It just is. 
I don't mean terrible in terms of bad. I mean terrible in terms of terror. It's always a horrifying thing when God judges. But now here's the truth. Let me explain. When God judges, He also preserves. When God judges, He preserves a remnant. And that's what He did in the Noahic flood. He preserved a remnant of eight souls. Humanity was not wiped from the face of the earth. God could have very well wiped humanity from the face of the earth and simply restarted over again. God could have detonated the globe. He could have, he could have devoured the cosmos in His holy anger and left nothing. He did not choose to do that. Our God established humanity at the center of creation in the Garden of Eden. And He means to restore that creation to Edenic glory and restore our relationship, our fellowship through Christ for eternity. That's the way God wants the world to look. Using water. That's always so strange to me too. That just think about this thematically. The most important thing on earth. Too much air and water. Can you survive without water? Two days? A couple days? A little more, a little less? Nobody's going a month without water. Long dead. Long dead. Water is essential for human survival. And God uses it to destroy. Use it to destroy human life. It's a powerful symbol of the brokenness of the planet because of sin. We're so broken, we've so destroyed this planet with our sin that God uses one of those elements that we need the most to destroy us. To wipe us away. Like a broom to dusty footprints. Job responds in Job chapter 12 verse 15. By saying of the Lord, if He withholds the waters, they dry up. If He sends them out, they overwhelm the land. The only life-nurturing state of this corrupted world is the balance. The shalom of the natural world that emanates from the will and purpose of God and His common grace for all humanity. The only reason the earth is as good as it is it's because God has His hands literally on all of it. The only reason you didn't die on the way to, to, to church today is because God has His hands on all of it. The only reason you're not devoured right now by, by disease is because God has His hands on all of it. God controls it all. The earth itself by its nature is rebelling against its, its one mission. And that was to preserve and protect us. It was all Eden at one time. Designed for God's people. Now what is it? If God withdraws His hand, the floods come and they wash us away. If God removes His thumb upon this world for an instant, storms. The surge of the sea upon the land to destroy. Whenever God takes away His restraining hand for even an instant, the world becomes murderous. That's the world we live in. Now, I think that's, that's really important to say. Because some of us, that know, no great world traveler, wish so many places I'd like to go, so many places I'd like to see, I'll never get to do it. But especially, to be honest with you guys, who've been there, 
the poor places. The poor, the poor places give you perspective, don't they? In the poor places of the world, death comes really easy. I think I've probably told you this before. Um, I remember who was with me that time we went down and we did the uh, medical clinic. Remember the medical clinic that time we went? And I went to, we went to the hospital and met a young man outside the hospital who was probably 25 years old maybe. And his face was horribly swollen all the way down to his neck. It was just, it was just one mass from his chest to his eyes. He was, his, 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 his eye, the whites of his eyes were, were yellow. He was dying. He was jaundiced. He was dying. You know what he was dying of? It was an abscess tooth. There's a part of the world where people die of an abscess tooth. It's a big chunk. It reminds us just how frail we are, doesn't it? How much we depend on the technology that God's blessed us with around us, the riches, the wealth that's around us to protect us. In a way, the rest of the world simply doesn't have that. In the rest of the world, a 50-year-old man is an old man. In the United States, a 50-year-old man reinvents himself. Besides, he wants to be something different. He goes back to school. 50-year-old men are getting their affairs in order in the rest of the world. Because the world is... It's horrible and murderous. Look, although theories abound as to the exact nature of God's judgment against the world during the flood, the final conclusion is clear from biblical evidence. And I'll mention those just for, for, for your satisfaction and my edification. Um, and they're not within your notes. Genesis 6-1 details the coming of the Nephilim. We know this is the only thing I can for certain tell you is they are an unholy offspring of some kind. Different commentators have different responses. I didn't list those because these are all kind of conjectural. Uh, one of the most common you'll see among modern commentators, I mean modern, so, you know, a, a certain type of modern commentator, is going to be that these were the, um, these were the unholy descendants of Cain that had... Um, infected the entire human race with the wickedness of Cain. And the reason why they are, uh, and, and the word Nephilim is hard to translate, but the reason why they are, are oftentimes rendered as like monsters, um, that's strange things, they were full of monsters. We kind of know it is though, isn't it? Just the human kind. Um, is this. And that is because there was conjecture going back a long time that the mark of Cain was not literally a blotch or some type of sign that would warn people away that Cain was protected by God, but that the mark of Cain was something, something monstrous about his appearance. Now, I'm an old English teacher, was until very recently, and I taught Beowulf to my seniors. And if you read the old English epic Beowulf, you find that the monster Grendel was supposed to be a descendant of Cain. So it goes back a long time in Western history that there was something so terrifying about Cain it scared people off. And that the, these, Cain, these descendants of Cain have now infected the rest of, of the globe. And all, almost all the peoples are, are like Cain now. 
However, uh, the word Nephilim also can, can link up this idea that we see the sons of God, angels have come down and somehow infected humanity. Some believing it literally being physically possible somehow that these angels would have produced children with human women and now produce a hybrid and evil unholy race of men. Or probably more likely that they have, have possessed earthly men and now produced families and children that are not physically deformed, but are morally deformed. And if we look at the evidence, further evidence, in, uh, we get a declaration from God concerning these unholy offspring. Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whatever has happened, the infection is absolute. God looks at men and women in general. He says, what? Every thought and intention is evil. Completely evil. This causes God to regret, literally to regret, the creation of mankind. His masterwork, so corrupted by sinfulness that He no longer embraces it. How bad did it get that God looked at humanity and said, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. God says this. The steadfast, loving God says, that's too much for me. My wrath can no longer be restrained. But that's where we were in terms of creation. The world into which Noah is born is destroyed by sin. As the Lord says in verse 11 of chapter 6, the earth was filled with violence. And in verse 12, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, for Peter, why make the parallel? Let's talk about it just a second. What's the point he's trying to make? It's very, very clear. Peter sees, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, Peter sees that the world in which he is ministering is looking more and more and more like the world of the Noahic Flood. That when the world becomes so corrupt with sin, that God simply, His call for justice, His desire and need for righteousness, is so overwhelming that God must judge it. That God must pronounce judgment and declare punishment upon the world. He must do this. Into this miry bog of carnal violence, demonic delusion, the Lord brings hope through the preservation of the race of men through one man, Noah, who was blameless in his generation. Despite the fact that God could have condemned it all, He does not, he does not but preserves mankind despite the corruption so that billions and billions of others can find redemption through Christ. Instead of just ending the line, regretting completely His actions, God enables us to be at this moment right now. Before Him. Many of us saved by grace. Never to know the ultimate destruction of, of mind, body, and soul in hell. Never to see the final state of the wicked. God's done that. God, as He does often, sees it, is provoked within His Spirit, has every right to be provoked within His Spirit. What does He do? He relents. 
He relents. He raises up Noah. A man out of his time. Unlike his peers. A man of faithfulness. Spends a hundred years building an ark. Most of us can't carry out a project for a month. And Noah spends a century building an ark. In a world without rain, Noah believes in the coming deluge and preaches it to ridicule. To ridicule. We lift up William Carey because he preached in India for seven years before he made a convert. Noah preached for a century, didn't make one convert. Not one. Everybody died. Everybody was judged. Everybody looked at Noah and laughed and scoffed and made fun. Everybody did. Sounds a lot like the world we live in, doesn't it? The love of God motivated the ark of Noah, the cross of Christ, and now the church with its gospel is literally, well, excuse me, is figuratively the second ark. The opportunity for the world to repent of its sins and believe before the deluge, this time of the fire of the wrath of the Lord overwhelms. Why does Peter seek this? Because it was the same situation. God was actively preserving a remnant. God was actively offering to the world an opportunity to repent of their sins and believe and place their trust in Him. The the original situation of the flood was now going to be repeated for the entire church age. We're going to spend... Not one, but two, or even if God calls it three or four or five or ten thousand years. Declaring the glory of God. Escape from condemnation that's found in the gospel. Going to do all those things. And people have the opportunity. Repent before the flood comes. Don't scoff. Repent before the fire falls. You know, the world is not an easily lovable place. It's filled with fear and dread, with starvation and decay, unspeakable unspeakable crimes and disgusting sins. The world is a decimated rock, unable to provide for its inhabitants the safety and security for which they long. As each year progresses, astute observers like us are made more aware of the true damage of sin upon the world. See, that's the problem, I think. And we're going to talk about it when he expresses it in the book of Revelations. And, and what I found to be a shocking passage, to be honest with you, it's not just that the world is marred and scarred and corrupted and destroyed by sin. It's that we keep hurting it. Our sin hasn't stopped. Our sin doesn't seem to be, it's finite because we're finite, but we don't seem to have reached the end of it. Humanity still continues to try the patience of the living God. Humanity still continues to sin against their brothers and their sisters, against whole families and old nations and races. Humanity continues, continues to build up a debt of sin that destroys the world around us. Why do we die? Because we're sinners. 
soul that sins must die. It's a declaration of the Scriptures. Why are we weak or sick or hurting? Because of sin. Sin has robbed us of everything. Sin is the enemy. The great enemy. Apostle John records this telling scene in Revelations 11:16-18 involving the heavenly Sanhedrin and their role in the coming judgment of the created order. When he writes, he says, "And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God." Now mind you, just one moment. We want to talk about proper worship. We want to talk about how we should be in the presence of God. Men who have been delivered, the heavenly Sanhedrin, 24 elders, delivered from their sins. Right, They're not sinners anymore. The body of their sin is dead. Molding in the grave. But yet in spirit, in the presence of God, the only rightful response is what? Fall on your face and worship. It's a pride, it's a decorum. It is, this is God. So what they do, they, they fell on their faces. They said this, We give thanks to you, o, to you, Lord, God Almighty, who is and who was, for you taken your great power and begun to reign. Now they're thanking God, why? For something that's going to happen. So that we have yet to see uh, materialize completely upon the earth, but we will someday realize, and it's going to be great, which is that all these enemy nations, including our own, all these seditious governments, including our own, that hate their people and take advantage of their people, and have always been, as John MacArthur said, always been the great enemy. Government has always been the enemy of faith. It has no way to be anything but that. Because it is of the devil itself. God controls its part of His sovereign plan, but in the end, it's always of the devil. It always hates the truth. It's never incapable of loving the truth. Incapable. That all of this is one of these days going to be squashed under the heel of the Almighty God. That he's going to come and He's actually going to reign over us. It's not going to be conjecture. It's not going to be we want to have a Christian government desiring things that we know we're never going to have and we never have had. It's always been evil. What we're going to get is God in literal manifested form upon the earth ruling over everything. There's going to be no more injustice. There's going to be no more bigotry. No more lies. No more theft. And no more murder. No more nothing. All sin washed away by the power of the living God. He puts it all back in order. He's coming to reign. They are lauding Him. Why? Because He's reigning. Because they lived in the cesspool that is this planet. And they hated every second of it. And they realized that being dead is so much better than being alive in this. They're so thankful that He's now going to come and end the suffering that is this world. God reigning here. The nations raged. But your wrath came. You tell me a day. And when the nations have done anything but what? Rage. Every nation is a riot with streetlights. That's all it is. Raging. Seething infernos of human wickedness. 
But His wrath comes. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants. The prophets and saints. And but listen to what He says. And those who fear your name, both small and great. Who's getting rewarded there? Do you understand that? Who's getting rewarded? Servants, prophets, saints, but also the little guys and the little girls who did what? We feared his name. We acknowledged Him every day with our lives. We acknowledged Him in our prayers. We acknowledged Him in our worship. We acknowledged Him when we sat in the midst of the Word of God and heard it preached. We acknowledged Him in every way we're expected to acknowledge Him. And that God's coming to reward that. You won't be forgotten. You won't be left out. You may not be a great name in the history of the church, but that God knows your name. He knows what you've sacrificed to love Him. And I'll tell you this much. He also knows when worship is hypocritical, when life is hypocritical, when there's been no sacrifice, because there's been no salvation. He knows. He knows. And then he says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. He's coming to deal with who? Those who've destroyed the earth. Who've destroyed the earth? Those who sin and keep on sinning. Who heap sin after sin after sin. Upon this already fractured planet. In this scene, the Sanhedrin worships God. The kind of worship is an everlasting message. In the heavenly state, these men are thanking the Lord because He's coming to rule in power over the fractured and corrupted earth. The only hope for this globe is the reign of Christ over all creation. The only thing that's going to save this planet is Jesus. God were to linger, we would not survive. Following this point, the Sanhedrin describes earth as it always has been. Raging nations deserving the wrath of God. The coming judgment of, of the dead who are separate from, from Christ. Moreover, the Lord delivers recompense for sin along with the blessings of judgment for those who are in Christ. Protected by His righteousness. Now when we, the insignificant as we are, fear the name of Christ... Offer obedience and submission to the Lord of our lives. We demonstrate Christian love that is only made possible by the new birth. Folks, fear and repentance are the hallmarks. What makes somebody a believer? Repenting of their sins and the fear of God. How do you know someone's a believer? They repent of their sins and they fear God. If you don't repent of your sins and you don't fear God, you're not a believer. By any understanding the Bible gives us. You're alien, estranged, without hope, separate from the love and power, the preserving influence of the living God. That's who you are. Apart from the saving work of Christ, men and women are only the destroyers of the earth. Evil wretches who hasten the coming judgment via their sin. The theme of Revelation is the coming of Christ for His loved ones. His zeal for righteousness on a cosmic scale and the urgent need for men and women to repent of their sins and surrender to the love of God. What must you do today? Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. What must you do every day we come together? What is demanded of a world that would thumb their noses at the living God who's never been washed clean, made white as snow by the blood of Jesus? 
What do you need to do? Repent of your sins. Turn your back. Don't do it in name only. Don't just do it in shaking and in tears. Don't just do it in the baptismal waters. But do it daily. The Christian lives a transformed life. That God is seeking to transform lives today. To do what He did with Noah. Noah was a man who didn't fit in in his time. Noah was unlike the others on earth. He wants, us to, he wants to make us unlike those around us. Look, love defines our Lord's relationship with this world. In a human way, Thomas Reed Kemp commented on love for us when he wrote, Love feels no burden, thinks nothing of its trouble, attempts what is above its strength, pleads no excuse for impossibility, for it thinks all things are lawful, for itself and all things are possible. The love that the Lord demonstrates for His people is beyond understanding and limit. However, the unique nature of the everlasting God is that each of His attributes is both infinite and in perfect balance with every other divine characteristic. Thus the Lord is always in magnificent harmony. Our Lord is infinitely just and infinitely righteous, and infinitely holy, and He's infinitely loving. He's infinitely merciful. But all of this is not pulling Him apart, but because of its harmony, He is always eternally perfect. Each of these maximized, and at the same time, in shalom. The excellencies of enduring love are not more impressive than the divine requirement for judgment. The sacrificial nature of His devotion doesn't overwhelm His need for restoring the created order to its eternal prescribed beauty. The testimony of the Scriptures is clear that our Lord practices boundless love toward His precious people. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the beauty and clarity of the love of God when he writes in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there, there's, the, there's the distinction. I have to stop. There's the distinction right there. There's what's so different about the gospel than anything else you're ever going to encounter. That's why the false gospel is so pervasive. Because the false gospel tells you, change your life and God will love you. Stop doing this and God will love you more. Do this great feat. Channel this awesome blessing and it will demonstrate what God has done. See, the false gospel lies to you. The false gospel makes demands. And eventually the false gospel dumbs, it, dumbs itself down enough that it makes demands that anybody can meet. But the true gospel says there is no demand but death. Your sins have brought about death. Christ died in your stead. When you couldn't help it, when you couldn't do anything about it, when you were so lost in darkness and lost in sin, you were such an enemy of the living God, there was no peace in you, Christ died at just the right time. And then in exactly the prescribed moment, Jesus carried your sins to the cross. 
You have to do nothing to receive it. You can do nothing to keep it. And there's nothing in this world you can do to earn it. Jesus changed you. Christ did it. We are all in this room. If we are radically different, we are made so by the shed blood of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary for our sins. He finished the work that we can never even attempt. He did the things that even if we did, them, if I threw my life away tomorrow, it would be worth nothing because I have a life stained with sin. But He offered the perfect person Himself for our sin. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, the horrific death of the only begotten Son of God for the sins of chosen enemies who had become His elect people. That's exactly who we were. When God looked down, and he and look when he looked down and he bestowed upon you the glory of salvation you were nothing to him at that moment but an enemy because you'd never been anything in your life anything but an enemy there was nothing in you that he would have any desire to say everything in you he needed to wash away in the flood of fire same thing with me it is a measure of the love of god and not the quality of man that you were saved This is the ultimate realization of the love of God for us. The unmatchable, utterly divine love of God for us does not just theoretically atone for sins and offer safe passage into the nourishing fellowship of Christ, but the love of Christ manifested on the cross arrived exactly in time to help us. Foundationally, Paul writes in Romans 5, 6, that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were again helpless. Romans 5 is clear. You are helpless in the face of your sins. There's nothing you could do. You'd be drowning in them right now. Whatever you did, however despicable it was, whatever the horrible way you thought you could dream up in your dark heart to destroy your life, you would have drowned in that if Christ had not helped you. The only way out of the pit of, of sin and despair is the love of Jesus. That's it. And Christ died for the ungodly. And he did it at just the right time. Demanding nothing and offering everything. The Lord sent Jesus, the monogenes, the unique, only Son of God, to do what had to be done. The intensity the cross indicates that was required to propitiate sin. Otherwise, who would do that? If the cross... If there was any other way but murdering Christ on a cross, God would have done that. Why did He kill His own Son for the good of a people that hated Him? Because He loved us and it was the only way. It was the only way. The cross is not just a reminder of the love and mercy of God. But it's a primer in the weight and cost of our sin. Without the fall, the turn of man from God and to Satan and his darker desires, the cross is unnecessary. Paul writes in Romans 4.25 NASB that Christ Jesus was delivered over for death on the cross because of our wrongdoings. Now look, the term used for wrongdoing is peripatoma, usually translated usually tra uh, translated accurately as trespass or transgression. If you see that in your Bible, it's accurate. It's a very accurate translation. Trespass or transgression. But in this rendering in ASB, 
the ideas brought forth that even missteps, unintentional wandering from the truth, simple mistakes are condemning. It's not just that each and every one of us has this deep, black, dark secret that we'd never tell anybody that's so horrible we never want anybody to know. Folks, that's true. But it was that we were condemned the first time we stumbled. We were condemned the first time we strayed accidentally from the path. Utterly condemned. Why? Because our corruption, even in its infancy, inevitably leads to legitimate and rebellious sin. Like a child learning to walk, I stumble into trespass before I run into all-out sin. My missteps grow over time into legitimate rebellion because sin is in me. As Paul explained in Romans 5.12 saying, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Just because the misstep condemned me, it condemned me not because that was going to be my only wrong. Because the misstep was the first one. And I was eventually going to master the evil that's in my life. I was going to become good at sin. Due to the fact that we are sinners by nature, trespassers always bloom into sedition. Trespasses, excuse me, always bloom into sedition that leads to death. Christ, though, did not just die to save us from sins, but He rose so that we will be raised to new life. He came not just to condemn sin in our flesh, but to bring the promise of eternal life. Paul completes his thought in Romans 4, 5, excuse me, 4, 25 by reminding us that Christ Jesus was raised because of our justification. The empty grave signals that the mission of the cross is complete and that our future is guaranteed and not conjecture or hollow promise. We now know that as His children, we have nothing to fear from His judgment or His coming. The church should be thrilled by both prospects. The love that our Lord practices is made evident in the suffering of Christ for the sins of His people. The global pronouncement of the gospel message in order to draw all men and women to Himself and in the final judgment of humanity and the world by fire. All of God's actions indicate that He loves us. They are all part of His love letter to His people, the church. So what should we do in response? If you're a believer, if you're a believer, you should be, should be desperate for the truth today. If you're a believer, you should reaffirm in your heart the reality that our God is coming and coming quickly. And then when He does, He will judge. He will judge this world by fire and He will condemn the dead. Those dead in Christ. Those dead without Christ. He will condemn them. And that our duty has never, never been any different. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that hates it. To draw from the world of enemies the sons and daughters of Christ. Paul departs on the Damascus Road preaching fire with letters to arrest and condemn and murder the church. Now on the Damascus Road, God strikes him blind and saves his soul. We were no less murderous. And we were no less vile. 
and God saved us by the truth. We now owe those lost around us the opportunity to hear the precious gospel. But now if you are if you are in this room and you do not know Christ, stop hastening your own death. Stop speeding as fast as you can to the moment of your own demise. Stop believing the lies of the world. Stop wasting your life on trinkets when Christ offers you treasures in heaven. Turn your back on your world. Your face to the crucified Christ. Repent of your sins today and believe the gospel and God will transform your life. Let's stand together and pray.